This is episode 87 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, I'll be doing a short year in review and then playing yet another radio interview. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 87. Well, this year has turned out to be a lot of fun. Uh, This season has been a blast. I finished season four um, back in October with um, only 12 episodes, but season five, as of today, already has six episodes. And we're only two months into the season, so it looks like it's going to be, uh, a, a, well, a season filled with uh, with magic history. It's, that's going to be great. Uh, quickly, though, I wanted to do kind of a recap of season four, and I started the season with an episode on David Devant, which was a lot of fun. The big uh, surprise or shock was finding out exactly how David Devant died, what he died from. And there were many rumors over the years that he died from something, I guess you would say, rather sinister. But the truth was finally revealed. And um, and I don't think I was the first one to bring it out, but um, it's a rather new thing that came out about it. So I'm certainly the first person that uh, discussed it on a podcast, that's for sure. Now, episode 72 was one of my all-time favorite episodes. It was an old-style um, old style radio drama, which I just loved doing. Uh, and the story behind it was I had written a few years ago a short story on Harry Keller. And basically what I did was is I, I, was, I wanted to write a, some sort of magic-related short story um, for a fringe festival to turn it into like a, like a one act play or that sort of thing. And, um, I was like, well, what can I write about? And I was looking through some magazines and and books and things. And I started to look through images, photos of Harry Keller posters. And as I was looking through these posters, a story just started popping into my head and I went, Oh my gosh, this is, this is going to be perfect. So I, I wrote it out, and it's kind of uh, Keller's story uh, th- through the imagery of his posters. And it's um, uh, the guide in the whole thing is Mephistopheles. And if you look at Keller's posters, you always see the devils and the imps. That's where I got that in- inspiration from. Anyway, it turned out great. It was a lot of fun. And I hope to do another one down the road at some point. And, and the best part about it was uh, you all, the listeners, um, definitely enjoyed it. So I appreciate that. Let's see. Next up, we had um, an episode. Well, I, we, had, we had three episodes, I should say, on Houdini in season four. And he always continues to be my favorite subject to delve, delve deeply into because he always delivers really fascinating results. So um, go back. You can go back and check out those there throughout. One of them I remember was a Thanksgiving episode about Houdini. It was a great story. Uh, The Anna Eva Faye episode 
was finally finished. That was episode 74. She was a highly influential performer. Uh, she was a medium and then a vaudeville clairvoyant. And I had purchased the uh, the Barry Wiley biography on Anna Eva Faye, and it was a, a tremendous resource. And over the years, I have gathered a bunch of other information on Anna Eva Faye, and I'd even I'd even visited her grave as well. So I was very psyched about doing the Anna Eva Faye episode until I realized, holy mackerel, I've got way too much information here. And I started feeling overwhelmed, and that's the worst thing, because the moment you start feeling overwhelmed, you, I, I was having trouble where to begin, where to where to stop, what to include, what not to include. It's oh, it was a drudgery, but uh, finally I got through it, and the results were really really good. And that was uh, the Anna Eva Faye episode. Uh, let's see, another one was the Fred Culpit episode. Now, Fred was famous for the Doll's House illusion, but he, he created more than that. But the Doll's House was his most famous creation. This was episode 76. Um, the Doll's House, I, I got to thinking about it, is really an amazing illusion. Now, its origins, when you find out, and you'll listen to the podcast if you haven't already done so, you'll find out uh, how he created it and where he debuted it and just some wonderful things about the doll's house but it's a it's a fascinating mystery considering that culpit really wasn't an illusionist but he created this thing that was clearly one of the top 10 illusions of the 20th century by far um practically every illusionist has had a version of the doll's house in their show so that's a testament to his creation and then finding out that pretty much every other doll's house that's out there is actually a ripoff, mm, that came as a big surprise as well. But one thing I did realize as I was doing the research, I had never seen Fred's dollhouse. I'd never seen what it looked like. I'd seen tons of others, but not Fred's. And fortunately, uh, while I was researching the podcast episode, I found in an old magic magazine a picture of Fred next to his doll's house. And it was very different from what I expected to see. And I posted that over on the blog. And then um, after the podcast went out, I actually came across a full color image of what the doll's house, his uh, particular doll's house looks like today. And that doll's house was over on the Davenport site. Now, if you've never been there, uh, I really encourage you to go check it out. It, the, the site is called Davenport Collection dot co dot uk and it is a great resource for magic history and it has a lot of stuff that um, i often find difficult to find in the books that i have here a lot of my books cover mainly american magicians so finding things on european magicians is sometimes tricky uh, but the Davenport site has a lot of a uh, lot of great information and a lot of great photos as well. So I encourage you to check that out. Let me see. The, the next episode is probably the most moving and emotional episode that I'll ever do on the uh, podcast. And that was the one. Uh, it was episode 77 on the Holocaust magicians. And Warner Reich was one of the folks that I talked about in the episode. And I believe that Warner had passed away around the time that I posted the episode. I actually had wanted to interview him, and I missed that opportunity. 
Um, it, it, the, but the episode itself, I talk about several different Holocaust magicians, and it is a must-listen episode for for everyone, whether you're into magic history or not. Simply the history of the events that took place are things we need to be reminded of so that we never forget them and, and never, ever repeat them. It was a great episode. Episode 79 was on Charlie Miller, and I think this was the first time I ever covered a close-up magician on the podcast. And Charlie is a fascinating character, and there's, thankfully, besides a lot of, a fair amount, I should say a fair amount of... Um, of uh, research material on him. There's also a lot of video out there, so it's great to see Charlie in action. But um, uh, the beyond some of the research material, fortunately, there were people alive, like um, Johnny Thompson, for example, and John Carney, and a few others that had uh, done interviews where they mentioned Charlie Miller, so I was able to gather some information from some of those interviews as well. Um, Charlie had the Magicana column in Genie Magazine, which was filled, chalk-filled with fantastic magic. But one of my favorite things that I learned about Charlie Miller was the fact that he was equally, equally as adept at apparatus magic and stage magic as he was with close-up. And I really appreciate that because apparatus magic is kind of frowned upon these days in the world of magic. Some consider it kind of hack magic or old school by, by many in the business. But to me, that is a very uneducated bias. Uh, I'll grant you a lot of the apparatus magic that's out there looks kind of dreadful by today's standards. It really does. But with the proper art design and good routining, that stuff is just as strong as anything in the world of magic. And I really enjoyed learning that about Charlie and many other things. It was great. The last episode of the season was on Chingling Foo. Not an easy episode to do because usually when you start talking about Chingling Foo, it immediately goes into Chungling Su, it gets overtaken by Chungling Su. And I really tried to, now I did talk about uh, Su as well, but I really tried to keep the focus on Chingling Fu, the original Chinese conjurer. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a fascinating uh, podcast episode for sure. Oh, and then there was one more episode, 80, which was a rebroadcast of a radio interview that I did on WSMI Radio out of, uh, out of Illinois back in 2019. And I had originally posted the interview on my blog, uh, themagicdetective.com, when it first came out. But this was the first time I ever put it up on the podcast. And I remember, uh, I was just thinking about this a bit ago, I remember the very first radio interview I ever did. It was for a station out of Canada, and the gentleman that had contacted me said, yeah, we're going to have you on, and uh, you're going to be our only guest. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, I guess... I might get a whole 15 minutes or something. And uh, I, I mentioned to him, I'm like, so what, you know, what, how much do I have? And he said, oh, three hours. And <laughs> so, yeah, my first, very first radio interview, I had to do three hours and I was petrified because I thought, oh my gosh, where am I going to come up with enough content to cover three hours? But as it turned out, 
the three hours just flew right by, and I even did a, a, a live on the air magic trick at the end of the uh, episode. So it was uh, it was awesome. Um, and I've done a lot of radio since then, and will continue to do more radio into the future. So now we are uh, in season five. And believe it or not, I started season five behind. Usually, when I begin a season, I try to get it in uh, in October. But season five this year didn't begin until November. And then, uh, usually, I try to do a bunch of episodes that first week that I you, know, you begin the new season. And this week, um, well, it, it took all month uh, to get them all done. And this was due uh, to me traveling and doing shows, which ate up the time that I would normally have for research and recording. The uh, Let me see. The first episode was 82 on Houdini's Ghost House. Episode 83 on Houdini's relationship with Ira Davenport. Episode 84 on Houdini and the Spiritualists. And then finally, episode 85 on Milbourne Christopher. And again, those were all supposed to be on the same week um, in, in actually in late October, but they didn't begin till November. Anyway, they all got out and everything is fine. Now, uh, episode 86 was one that I had planned to do uh, several times, but I always wanted it to fall around Christmas. And I would always think of it in other times of the year when it wasn't Christmas, so I'd always held off. And this year, I remembered to do it, so I got it done just, just by the deadline before Christmas. And I hope you enjoyed that episode on author and amateur magician Charles Dickens. And now we're up to Podcast 87 today. And I'm actually going to be sharing with you yet another radio interview. This one was recorded in October of this year and was done by the same gentleman who interviewed me in 2019 on WSMI Radio, John Michael Marty. Uh, it's a really fun uh, episode. We, we, um, it went by really, really quickly and talked about a lot of magic history, a lot of Houdini, a lot of uh, pandemic magic stuff. So it, it was a, a great time. So this will be the first time I've, I've posted it. So this will be all new stuff for you. There is one kind of a, um, it wasn't a glitch, but it was, um, we were talking about how Houdini died and I never got to finish my thought on that. So it sounds like uh, I, I ended it um, a bit prematurely before we went on to another topic. That happens in radio when you're live. It, it's just one of those things. But it was, and like I said, it was a fun interview, and I hope you enjoy it. So um, let's listen to that interview now. I'm an absolute pro with my iPhone, except when it comes to being able to turn on the speakerphone at a moment's notice. It's terrible. But Dean Carnegie is our guest. Dean, one of, uh, well, one of probably one of the busiest uh, practicing magicians who works clubs and, and all over the country. And uh, he has uh, a few things that go beyond just the magic because he uh, has a wonderful podcast called The uh, Magic Detective. We'll talk about that in a bit. But first off, what's been going on in your world, especially since the pandemic, Dean? Well, it's <laughs> the pandemic has been uh, quite a uh, interesting thing to navigate through, you know, um, given that uh, folks like myself, magicians, are 
generally live performers, um, all that kind of went away during the pandemic. So um, uh, what ended up happening was is uh, uh, quite a few of us, myself included, had to figure out, okay, how do we keep doing shows during the pandemic? And uh, there's this thing I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it called Zoom, oh, yeah. uh, the video technology. So uh, we started embracing Zoom and creating shows uh, virtual magic shows for, for Zoom. And what was interesting about it is you couldn't really do, uh, the, uh, the kind of shows that you would do live. Uh, when you were doing it via Zoom, the audience is to make it unique, uh, rather than have them watch it like they were watching a TV show, um, because you were live with them and you could talk back and forth. What we started to do is create routines that the audience could do along with us. So they could sit at home with a deck of cards and actually do some of the magic right along with us, whether it was with cards or coins or what have you. And it really blossomed into something amazing. Uh, it was a, you know, here the, the pandemic is a terrible thing, but for, for our community, the magic community, having this new sort of magic was, uh, was a blessing in disguise. So, and audiences just, just loved it. The fact that, you know, they were sitting at home and, oh my gosh, I can, you know, do some of this stuff from home. It was, it was great. Now, you know, one of the things that I first thought about when, when you mentioned that was, uh, I mean, magic has been around since, well, what, the days of the pharaohs. I mean, sure. you know, if you wanted to stay alive, you'd better come up with some sort of gimmick to, you know, please the pharaoh. So the bottom line is you take this old, old, old technology, but you had to embrace a new technology all at once. So not only did you have to almost reinvent your magic, but you also had to learn this new technology to make it work. Oh, yeah. We were, um, you know, I say we because so many of my fellow magicians were doing the same thing. We were basically putting TV studios in our homes so that we could do these programs from home. I mean, I still have my setup with the green screens and, and lights and video cameras and the whole nine yards. And it just uh, it was an amazing um, you know, it, it was funny because it's a new technology. We ended up embracing it pretty quickly. Um, but like I said, it, uh, it worked out in a really remarkable way, I think. Um, and for some people, it worked out better than others. I have some friends of mine that just were constantly working, working more doing uh, the virtual programs than they were prior to that. Um, myself, I did a lot, but I didn't do as much as some. Um, I had, I had a couple of buddies of mine were working for companies like Google and, uh, and Microsoft doing virtual shows. And I'm like, wow, I wish I had that contract. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, but it's again, you know, you can, you can do this kind of thing for, you know, a, a few people. You can do it for thousands of people. It's a great way to share magic and kind of a new way to share magic as well. When you were setting this up and, and reinventing this particular type of magic show, uh, you were also continuing on, I'm assuming, you had the good fortune of, of doing your podcast as well, something you had set up long before the pandemic. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the podcast is uh, magicdetectivepodcast.com, and, it, and the, basically I'm a 
besides being a magician, a performing magician, I'm also a magic historian, a Houdini historian. So I love to read about and research different magicians, whether they're popular or even some that aren't so popular. And I started with a blog, which was themagicdetective.com, but then I wanted to take it and do something else with it. So a few years ago, I created the podcast. And uh, so during the pandemic, I continued doing the podcast and putting out episodes. I think we're up to 80 episodes now on the podcast, and it's uh, it keeps growing. Even uh, here lately, the last few months have been a little slow to get out episodes, but um, I look at the numbers, and it keeps growing every month. So uh, I, I have an audience out there that enjoys the history of magic, and uh, I don't give away any secrets, but I do tell the unique stories of these people, and and I mean, that's really what it's about, you know, whether you're watching the History Channel or something like that, you're learning somebody's story, and that's what we're, you know, we're, we all get engaged with. A lot of times when I, when I talk to someone who has a certain uh, amount of expertise in one area, I always ask them about their library, and they say, well, I have... 65 books on this, or I have, uh, you know, three shelves of books about this, and I'm just curious, if books have been written about magic for a long time, but they're not always necessarily what you call mass market, so how, how do you go about getting your information? Oh, that's, you know, that's a very, very interesting question. When I began in magic, um, years ago, I would go to the to the local bookstore that we had, or to the library, and all they had were the, what what you just mentioned, the mass marketed kind of books. So I I could find a couple history books, uh, a couple you know simple how to do trick books, but that was it. And then as I got, um, well, I, I discovered Al's Magic Shop in Washington, D.C., and I began buying actual books that were printed specifically for magicians. And these books tend to be printed in between 250 and 1,000 copies, not many more than that. So it's definitely not mass market. But there are uh, thousands and thousands of magic books that have been written for the magic community. In fact, I'm looking at my desk right now, I, I need to get a new bookshelf, and I've got 400 magic books on my desk. Oh my! Completely, completely covering my uh, my desk, and then against the wall, I've got another 600 in boxes. So I've got well over a thousand magic books, and the majority of them actually are are, are on, on the history of magic. So um, I have a great resource whenever I want to look something up. Well, you obviously need that history if you're going to do a podcast on, on magic. So that it's good that you have those. It's time to catalog those books, though, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I keep them in a particular order, so I know, what, you know, I know how to get to something really quickly, definitely. Uh, Dean Carnegie is our guest. He is the podcast uh, author of uh, The Magic Detective. You can also read his blogs at themagicdetective.com. Also, he is a fascinating fellow to watch perform. He's gone through a, a steampunk phase. We have to talk about that in a bit. We're going to talk more, including his, uh, well, let's say his, not infatuation, but definitely his tie-in to Houdini and those that followed right after this break. All right, we're back with Dean Carnegie. Dean has... Uh, 
long been a a, a tremendous uh, student of Houdini and a couple of other guys who have done Houdini-like things, which we'll talk about. But let's talk a bit about uh, the master himself, Harry Houdini. Not only his life, his death, but the incredible fight that he had with the uh, with uh, mediums and and all that. Sure. Well, uh, you know, it's because of Houdini that I got interested in magic in the first place. The uh, the 1953 movie starring Tony Curtis, Houdini was the title, and uh, I saw that as a kid and completely was enamored with the, the whole concept. As a matter of fact, there's a funny story in the beginning of that movie. Uh, it starts with Tony Curtis as Houdini doing a trick where he takes a, a paper cone and he pours some milk inside, and the milk vanishes. And um, I remember seeing that. I remember as a kid watching that. And as soon as the movie was over, I ran upstairs to the kitchen and I grabbed a, a newspaper and I opened the refrigerator door and I took a, a gallon of milk and began to pour it into the paper cone. And, and that is the moment I realized that there was more to magic than uh, than I thought because milk went everywhere. So. That, that was my first introduction to magic, but uh, not long after that, I, I went to the bookstore and I picked up uh, a book called Houdini, The Untold Story by Milborn Christopher and a couple other books on magic. And that really got me uh, got me going. But uh, reading about Houdini was such a fascinating guy because he wasn't just a magician. He was a he was a magician. He was a uh, one of the early silent movie actors. He was a pioneer aviator. He was an author. So this became kind of a template for my life because I realized, you know, you don't have to have just one thing you do. You can be involved in lots of things and excel at, at more than just one thing. So that was kind of an interesting part about Houdini that that uh, I glammed onto, but his life, you mentioned the spiritualists. So there's this, um, there's this story that goes around and it's propagated a lot by the movies that when Houdini's mother died, he went into this deep depression and he started to go visit what were called spirit mediums. These were people that could apparently talk to the dead and he would go to them to try to contact his mother. And this is, this has been in a number of the different movies and stuff, but the reality is th that didn't happen. He never, you know, didn't do that. Uh, his mother died in 1913. It wasn't until the 20s that he really went back into uh, investigating spirit, uh, spiritualists and uh, mediums. And he began to realize, well, he probably knew all along, but they were all phony. They, they were, you know, the things that they were doing were, were fake. They were basically magic tricks. And he realized that they were ripping off the, the public, especially a, a public, this was shortly after World War One that were, you know, wanting to speak to, you know, their sons and daughters that died in war. And here are these mediums taking advantage of them. So Houdini went on this crusade to, uh, to try and stop them or at least expose them. And, and help people from uh, falling into the traps of these mediums. That That's fascinating because I, I'm sure if you asked, you know, nine out of ten people who saw the movie, they would swear to you, yes, he, you know, he believed in it. He searched all his uh, rest of his life to make contact. So you're telling me something I wasn't aware of either. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's it. 
it's funny, you know, again, it's one of those, there's a lot of myths about Houdini that come up, you know, because of that 1953 movie, another example of a myth, um, in the movie, he dies doing the water torture cell. But the reality was he did the water torture cell for years. Uh, so he never died doing it. So this is, but because of the movie, people went, oh, yeah, oh, I know how Houdini died. He died doing a trick. No, that wasn't the case at all. So so the story goes, and I'm, I guess part of this is true, he was punched in the stomach by a kid. And he wasn't ready for it, or, or is that is that how that the uh, is that part of what happened? He, well, that is that's something that led up to it. He was in Montreal, Canada. He was in his dressing room. Um, a college student came in and asked him about uh, his uh, supposed iron midriff that he could take a punch without without feeling it. And Houdini was kind of half paying attention. He was looking at his mail or whatever. And he decided to get up to, to, to demonstrate it. And the college student punched him before he was ready. And uh, this uh, put Houdini in quite a bit of pain. Now, the, the story that I've, I've heard is he uh, kind of regained his composure and let the student hit him again. And he was, you know, apparently wasn't hurt. But when everybody went away, he was in some severe pain. Now, the, the medical question is, because he died of a ruptured appendix, the medical question is, did this punch to the abdomen, did this cause a ruptured appendix or was he already having issues with his appendix prior to this, and this just kind of exacerbated it? So, um, but you know, the punch clearly is, you know, is like the the demarcation of when his life uh, is beginning to be over. Okay, and and how old was he when he died? Fifty-two. He was only fifty-two years old. Quite young, actually. Okay. And and you had mentioned that he had done the water torture cell uh, many, many, many times. I mean, he invented it uh, or, or improved upon it from an earlier magician. No, no. The water torture cell was his idea. He had he had uh, <clears throat> he had kind of an interesting progression on on his escapes. He had come up with the hanging straitjacket escape, and then he created this thing called the milk can, which basically looked like an old galvanized milk can, but it was big enough for a person to get inside, and he would fill it full of water and, and be locked inside and escape from that. And he took the idea of the hanging straitjacket, of hanging upside down, in the milk can, and he created this tank, this big aquarium, basically, that he could hang upside down into inside and be locked in. And uh, escaped from, and he called it the uh, the water torture cell. All right. Now, when those of us who weren't old enough to, you know, hang around with Houdini, or there was no TV to watch, we we have our 1953 movie to basically give us the the idea and, and, and know what he did. Let's talk about the guy who said, "I'm going to." I'm going to do everything Houdini did, and I'm going to, in many ways, make it better, or at least try to. Uh, and that is our mutual friend, Steve Baker. How did your association with him come about? And let's talk about Steve a little bit. Sure. Well, I remember um, I remember seeing videos of Steve when I was growing up of, of doing his various escapes and things. So I was aware of him. Um, 
And then at some point, uh, I started working on a book on Houdini, and I thought, you know, uh, Steve Baker might be somebody I should interview about this because he's done a lot of Houdini's things. And I was able to get his uh, phone number, and I called him up on the phone, and he was a, he was slightly reluctant to talk to me initially because he didn't know me. And uh, that lasted about three minutes, and then uh, the rest of the conversation, the three-hour conversation, um, uh, continued. And we talked for – we talked like that uh, for years, um, almost on a daily basis. We would talk for hours. We became best buddies, and he was he was quite the character. We um, We talked about his escapes a lot. I remember him telling me one day, he goes, Carnegie! Nobody knows how I do my water torture cell. And I was like, really? Really? He's like, yeah, nobody knows. Not even the guy that built it because I changed the method after I got it. I'm like, okay. I'm like, well, let me ask you something, Steve. Uh, you're, you're, you feel like I, you're putting a challenge to me here. So um, give me a couple of days. I'll call you back. <laughs> and he's like, do, do your best, Carnegie. Do your best. And uh, so a couple of days later, I watched the watched it a few times, and I, I called him up, and I'm like, "Hey, Steve, hey, um, what do you what do you think of this?" And I, I told him, I'm not going to give it away, but I told him, and there's this long silence. <laughs> you figured it out. And he goes, "Carnegie, you are the only one." And I'm, I I was laughing. And the funny thing was, is if it was anybody else. He would have denied it. But we had this kind of interesting relationship where he just couldn't, he couldn't BS me. And, uh, he'd end up laughing about it. So, um, so that was, that was pretty cool. Uh, I, I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed those, many of those conversations. You know, back in, back in 19, uh, I want to say 72 or 73, uh, I, I met Steve Baker for the first time. When he essentially returned home to where his mom and dad lived in Irving, Illinois, there, you know, and he did a, a benefit show at Hillsborough High School. And one of the things that he did, in addition to a lot of the simple escapes and really working with the crowd and doing a great show, of course, he wound up with what he always said was his great nightclub showstopper, and that was his chicken surprise, which was one of the funniest things I ever saw. And I, I can't imagine the effort, the, uh, the imagination and the, the effort that it took to put that together because it was 15 minutes of drama and comedy and, and magic and it was an incredible end to a, a wonderful evening. That's funny. Well, you know, I, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because the people that knew Steve Baker, especially in the, in the magic world, they only knew Steve as Mr. Escape. They didn't know he did other things. Uh, he did an illusion show. He did a mentalism show. And he had this comedy act. And like you said, the highlight of the comedy act was, was his chicken surprise routine. And the one unfortunate thing, um, as far as we know, that was never videotaped uh, so there's there's no record as far as we know of of chicken surprise lots of his uh, of his other material is you know has been recorded but that is uh that is one thing that as far as we know doesn't exist 
Well, you know, Steve, uh, because I think of his relationship and friendship with Dick Clark, uh, he always claimed that he had more hours of live television than any other escape artist or magician ever. Yeah, well, that was uh, I, that was true during his time. Um, yeah. Since since then, things have changed. Uh, a, a perfect example was Chris Angel. Who, oh, sure had his own television weekly television show so it's pretty easy to to uh, uh overcome steve's amount of, of footage but at the time yeah there was uh, there was nobody that had that that much uh airtime on tv and not just in the states worldwide i mean steve appeared you know in canada and mexico and argentina all over the world doing doing escapes so uh, he had uh, had quite a bit of footage, for sure. Yes, he definitely did. Uh, one more break, and uh, then we'll come back. And we want to talk a bit about some of the other people that you've covered on the podcast. We want to talk about some of the different things you've branched out on, uh, a little bit of steampunk. As we'll talk about building illusions and uh, anything else you want to talk about, okay? Sounds good. All right, we'll be back in one minute. All right, we have been talking uh, with our good friend Dean Carnegie, and I hope uh, those of you who are hearing uh, Dean for the first time will check out the uh, Magic Detective podcast or go to themagicdetective.com and read his blog. Over 80 episodes in the podcast, all basically on characters and the history of magic. But, Dean, how, again... Uh, you started writing, you got your interest, you started the podcast, and how, how much has this, uh, made an impact and, uh, affected how you've done your magic shows yourself? Uh, well, the history of magic has always influenced me. Like, like I mentioned earlier, when I began, uh, the only thing I could find were history books on magic. These were mass marketed, uh, history books on magic, but still they were history books. And I remember when I started going to magic shops as a kid, because I had read, you know, because the, these history books were all I had, I knew all about the, these many magicians and I would go to these magic shops and they'd be like, Oh, who is this guy? And I would know instantly would know who it was. And they'd always look at me like, who is this kid? This kid knows everything about every magician. What is that all about? And it's just because that's all I had. So, uh, and it, it just continued throughout my life. So when I started learning magic, I've always been influenced by what was done in the past. And sometimes, you know, you take things that were done in the past and you tweak them and you, you update them and, and, uh, you can create some new mysteries today. But I was, talking earlier about this stuff that came out of the pandemic, the virtual magic, the interactive stuff. A lot of that was, uh, was material that was written back in the thirties and forties, but you were able to update it to make it work in a virtual format. So it's the history of magic. There's so much stuff back there that you can pull from and create a whole career out of things that have already been done because modern audiences aren't familiar with it at all. Oh, uh, most definitely. Now, one of the times, I think the last time we talked, uh, when I was uh, also keeping up with you on Facebook, uh, you were you were just starting to build some steampunk 
uh, illusions. And I'm curious, and I have a good friend who does uh, magic here in central Illinois and St. Louis area who also does a uh, old-time medicine show and, uh, you know, a steampunk show. What, what was the appeal that brought that on? Well, the, um, I was always interested in the, the particular look, the steampunk look, and I always likened it to the Disney movie, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, where you, they had that ship, the Nautilus, and there was all this iron and rivets and all this, oh, yeah. it was steam powered and everything. And I always thought that would be such a cool look for, for a magic prop. And then I discovered, uh, and it was already out there, but I, I came upon this whole movement called steampunk. And I'm like, what is this? This is so cool. And it's basically people that were interested in that kind of thing. They were interested in Jules Verne and, and, uh, and people like that and started to basically take uh, what's called cosplay, which is costume play. And they dress up like these Victorian characters, but it's also like re, re uh, imagining history. So, um, back, if you could imagine back in the 19th century, they had ray guns and things like that, but they were all powered by steam. You know, <laughs> yes. so it's a, this really weird, uh, unusual kind of way of, of looking at things. And, and I was like, you know what? That's, this is perfect for magic. So I started decorating my props, uh, in this style with, you know, brass and rivets and gears and cogs and things. And it's the moment I did that, I noticed that the audiences were looking at these props that before that were just painted, you know, in whatever color, you know, kind of normal uh, paint job. When they were like that, they really, you know, they would look at it and go, oh, that's just a magic box, whatever. And they were really no interest. Now that they were steampunked, all of a sudden they had this, they were highly interested in this. And I'm like, this has revitalized a whole area of magic that was dying. So um, I did that to a bunch of props, and it's just amazing how people found this new interest in them just because of the way they looked. They still operated the same, but they looked uh, different. And I changed some of the routines to kind of fit that steampunk style. And I created a character that, you know, wore Victorian clothing. And, and I still do the uh, the steampunk show from time to time. So I, I love that particular genre uh, of magic and that particular time of, in history. So it kind of all works together. Did uh, movies like The Prestige, and I forget the one other one that was similar, uh, did they add an appeal to make magic more popular, or did they do harm? What did you think about uh, a movie like that? Oh, no. Without a doubt, The Prestige and the other one was The Illusionist. Right. They came out about the same time. They definitely, they treated magic very, very well. And they definitely gave magic a boost. What's interesting about the movie The Illusionist with Edward Norton, when Edward Norton begins his magic show, one of the things he does is is he does this piece where he takes some uh, a seed from an orange and he puts it in a in a little fl- uh, flower pot. And then right there in front of the audience, this orange tree grows and sprouts oranges and he tosses them out into the audience. And then a, a borrowed ring that he had borrowed from somebody in the audience and caused to vanish appears at the top of the orange bush. It's being carried by two butterflies that are flying up. And 
a normal person watching this might go, well, that's, you know, they probably created that crazy thing for the movie. No, that was actually a trick that the famous French magician Robert Houdin would do regularly in his show. It was called the Fantastic Blooming Orange Bush, and they borrowed that illusion for the movie to make it more historically accurate. So it's, uh, and we, you know, when modern audiences saw this, they were like, this is amazing. And again, it goes back to what I just said. You know, there's so much in the history that if you bring it up to date, well, the it's way, brand new to people. The way you described it, it was amazing. I, I oh, had yeah. no idea. Uh, that I would love to see it. Is that I'll have to go back and watch the movie to catch that. I guess that was in the Illusionist. You say that was in the Illusionist. Now the other movie, the uh, the Prestige, that had um, Christian Bale and uh, Hugh Jackman. Uh, that was interesting because it was sort of a battle of magicians, and uh, there could be that back in the 19th century, early 20th century, there were magicians that uh, kind of fought tooth and nail. Uh, it, there was a lot of competition for theaters and that kind of thing, so it, it did exist. And uh, they, these two characters were fictional, but within the the, uh, the the movie, there's a character in there called uh, Chung Ling Su, who they uh, the the two of them watch to try to learn how they he does a particular trick. Well, that Chung Ling Su character turns out he was a real character from history, and uh, so it's it's interesting how they uh, they took real facts from history and put them in these movies to kind of enhance them and uh, I, I love both those movies are great i wonder what pt barnum thought of magicians well pt barnum was an amateur magician and he loved magic and actually we were mentioning houdini's fight against the spiritualists earlier pt barnum was one of the early exposures of spirit mediums he actually did that as well and uh, so they had, you know, there's a bit of a connection there between, uh, and, you know, of course, P.T. Barnum was known as one of the greatest showmen of all time, and Houdini probably uh, ranks up there with P.T. Barnum. Now, I'm going to ask you about another movie, uh, actually two movies, uh, the same movie made twice. Uh, Cornell, uh, I'm sorry, Montgomery Cliff starred in a movie called Nightmare Alley. And then a little bit later on, Bradley Cooper, just in the last couple of years, was in the remake of Nightmare Alley. And both of them were incredibly good movies, I thought. Uh, what did, what did you think of that whole mentalist thing? And, 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 uh, is, is the, the mentalism nightclub act, is that, I mean, does anybody still believe that anymore? Yeah, well, this is what an interesting topic. Um, I actually have never seen the original Nightmare Alley with Montgomery Cliff, but I did see the the, the remake. And uh, what's interesting about that, Nightmare Alley was written by a man who also wrote a biography about Houdini. So he was very entrenched into the, in the world of magic. So a lot of the stuff he put in there when they were exposing some of the uh, methodology behind, you know, how mentalists work, it was accurate for that time period. But nowadays there are lots more methods and things. And, and your question is, is that popular anymore? Do people believe that? And the answer to that is people actually watch mentalists and believe they're real more than anything I know. And, uh, and, and mentalists will put a disclaimer up saying, you know, what I do isn't real. 
but you know, people walk away thinking that, oh my, yeah, this person can definitely read my mind. That's how convincing they are. <laughs> well, you know, uh, the amazing Randy, who we lost uh, what a couple of years ago, uh, yeah. he he was. He was a, uh, I'm trying to think of the word I want to say, he was what you might call a central figure, and you either loved him or hated him, depending on how you felt about his investigation, so to speak. But what did you think of him? Oh, Randy was a character. Um, I remember, I used to watch Randy on TV, and I was always fascinated by him. The funny story uh, about Randy, he came when I lived in Virginia. He came to uh, to town one uh, one time, and there there was the, the the mall that was not far from my house had built a magic theater there. It was called Fudini's, and they had hired uh, Randy to perform. And I remember getting off work and uh, walking in the mall, and I saw Randy from a distance. And I was so nervous. I followed the man all the way around the mall and never got up nerve to talk to him and say hello. <laughs> and uh, I was, it was so funny. Years later, I, I saw him again and, and talked to him, and, uh, and he was a very nice person. But he, he was very much in the Houdini mold. The, the difference was where Houdini was exposing the, the mediums that claimed they could talk to the dead, what Randy's take was – he was going after the, the fake uh, psychics, so the people that that would claim they could bend spoons or 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 this kind of thing. Um, he, he, those are the people. So his his main target for a long time was Uri Geller, and uh, he and Uri would uh, would fight back and forth. In fact, there was a uh, there was a special uh, that the two of them were on, and I remember Uri coming up first. And he was going to do a little bit of his act, and then Randy would come on after and kind of debunk it. And one of the things Uri did, he walked up to the screen, and he said, okay, okay, uh, at home, if you have a watch uh, that is broken or, or, or an appliance that is broken, I want you to bring it to the screen, and I want you to say, work, work, work. <laughs> and uh, so I'm looking at my roommate at the time, and I'm like, hey, the doorbell. And he goes, yeah, do it. Because we lived in this place, the doorbell never worked the whole time I lived there. So I walked over to the door, uh, the door, and I went, work, work, work. <laughs> and uh, we're laughing. And then I pressed the doorbell, and you know that thing went off. <laughs> it never worked the entire time we were there. And after doing that with Uri Geller, that doorbell worked the rest of the time we were there. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so crazy. So crazy. But... You know, but I loved Randy. I, I thought he was—I thought he was a great guy. Oh, it's amazing. He used to be. Oh my goodness, he used to be on with Larry King, and 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 back in the days. Oh, even yeah, he he loved to be on television. That's for sure. Oh yeah. The interesting thing now, too, as we get closer, technology, science. You know, science debunks things. Technology makes people say. Oh, why did I fall for that? Uh, what are the challenges of whether it's a nightclub magician or a a huge uh, TV star magician? What are the challenges going forward to keep audiences interested? Do you think? Well, the, as far as technology, I'll, I'll tell you the, the the biggest thorn in the flesh of every magician I know is YouTube. 
because uh, anybody can go on YouTube and, and say, this is how a particular trick is done. And, and it drives us insane. And we're always trying to come up with new methods. And I know David Copperfield, for example, uh, was known to come up with numerous methods on how his illusions were done just because they were constantly putting out the secrets so we would have to change them so a lot a lot of us in the community did the same thing um i actually back when they before youtube was around when they had the masked magician i don't know if you remember him oh i do uh, i do when the masked magician was on tv i uh, actually created a routine around the masked magician where i brought out a box and i told everybody i'm like you probably just saw this on tv exposed but i want i'm going to get somebody up here from the audience and i want you to check this thing out for yourself and make sure that what i'm showing you is legit and none of that stuff you heard on uh, from the mass magician was real and sure enough they'd check out the box and they'd get inside make sure it was empty no sliding doors or mirrors or any of that nonsense no people hiding in there and then i you know would go ahead and proceed with the illusion and keep the person the volunteer from the audience keep them up on stage while the whole thing took place just so that they could verify that this was really, really happening. So I took advantage of that. But, uh, you know, at the same time, there were a, a number of illusions that, well, I guess I'm just going to have to put that in the closet because uh, it's been exposed and there's no way around, uh, you know, around the exposure until people completely forget, which uh, happens. Oh, I would think so, because I remember, I remember seeing those Fox specials, and uh, but I don't remember one thing about them other than I remember yeah. seeing them. So, but but you know, also people need to realize, and and you've been so good about saying it, these are illusions. You've not sold your soul to the devil. You don't have some sort of you know hellacious ability to actually saw a person in half. Or do you? <laughs> no, no. I mean, we are, we are, um, the, the, I mentioned Robert Houdin, the guy with the, the orange bush. He had a phrase that he came up with back in the, the 1800s. And he said that a magician is essentially an actor portraying a magician. And that is really what we are. We are actors pretending to be magicians. We don't have real power. We don't have magic. You know, we don't cast spells. We don't do black magic. We do, uh, you know, we, we have our secrets. We have our deceptive things that we do, but it's all, it's not for a nefarious reason. It's for entertainment. We're not out to, to um, swindle people, basically. We're out to entertain them. Now, is your home base Nashville these days? You betcha. Uh, and performance-wise, uh, if somebody wants to come to Nashville and see you, what? How, how busy are you? Are you are you out in the clubs? Uh, what are you? I know uh, you get to Magic you, Castle once in a while, but that's that's a far cry. Yeah, no, I mean, I uh, well, actually, Illinois is not that far from here. So if somebody in your listening audience wants to hire me, uh, I, I'm closer than I was before to. Uh, to Illinois, that's for sure. I'm actually going to be on Halloween night. I'm going to be in Memphis doing a show at the Wolf Chase Galleria out there doing two shows for them. So, um, yeah, I, I love being here in the central part of the country because I can reach more areas than I could reach when I was way out on the East Coast. So, yeah, if you want to, you want to check me out, you want to hire me for something, CarnegieMagic.com is my main website. And, uh, you know, I travel all over the country. 
Well, you know, uh, uh, we may wind up just getting you up here uh, in the spring or maybe even closer to Christmas. I'll be in touch. I know a couple people who are very interested. They may like to bring you up here to the Litchfield Community Center, and we could pack the place, uh, and that, that would be fun. I'll, I'll, I'll stay in touch with you on that, Dean. Sounds, sounds good. I, I would enjoy it. All right. Uh, our guest has been Dean Carnegie, and, of course, we'll have this interview up on our website on our own podcast uh, facility uh, coming up in the next couple of days. And, of course, Dean, I'll send it to you so you can put it on yours as well. <laughs> Great. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It has been fun. It has been a way too fast hour. But, boy, we've sure learned a lot and uh, got to know Dean Carnegie. So thanks, Dean. We'll talk again. We'll, we won't wait two years to do it again, okay? All right, sounds good. You take care, John. All right, thank you, Dean. Dean Carnegie, and I hope you enjoyed that. It was definitely fun. And that was my interview with John Michael Marty, uh, WSMI Radio out of uh, Illinois. And it was really it was a great uh, it was a great time. Well, you just listened to it. You could see uh, how much fun we had uh, bantering back and forth and talking about different aspects of magic. If you enjoyed the episode, please uh, like the episode in whatever way your podcasting provider will allow. And I will see you all next year, next January, uh, probably middle of the month, with more episodes of the Magic Detective. Until then, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Be well, stay safe, and Happy New Year. <laughs>